Good morning. You're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka, your Wednesday morning voice. Welcome, welcome to today's show. Today is what? February the 21st. And we are continuing with our uh, Black in America series. And I am excited today to welcome to the show Nazir Al-Mujahid, who is the founder of Outstanding Muslim Parent, author of Parenting on Purpose. Thank you for joining me, Nazir. Good morning. It's a pleasure to join you, Mubarak. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you as well. Um, We are going to talk a little today about parenting and not just parenting, but parenting black children in particular in and both we are in both anti-black and pro-black times. And I thought Nazir would be the perfect person to have this conversation with. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Nazir. So he has a very interesting history. So he is the eldest of six children who thought he'd have two kids and now is happily married and the father of 10 children, four daughters and six sons raging from the age of 22 years old to a month and a half. Nazir learned early on that family dysfunction can go on for generations and made the decision to be intentional with his style of parenting after becoming Muslim. This led to him to a lifestyle changes and he began to experiment with integrating some business practices into his family and that has been very successful. I am familiar with Nazir because we are social media friends and y'all know how much I love my social media friends. <laughs> and uh, he has an amazing um, philosophy on parenting um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So Nazir, you are the you are the eldest of six children. So they say that when you have when you're the eldest, you tend to be a little bit more particular. Now, did your being do you one do you feel that that's true that does does do you nitpick a little bit more than your siblings? <laughs> it's, it's funny because um, birth order does actually it's been shown to really have an effect. I mean, not only on your outlook, but on leadership and your personality in general. So um, nitpicking may be looked at more as being more detail oriented, <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, versus my younger siblings. But indeed, indeed, it's funny because the science behind birth order is so funny that you don't really recognize it being in it. But when your children come up, you get to notice their different personality types and their leadership styles and whatnot. And, pretty accurate do you do you find that your um that your kids have that same kind of like the oldest one is much more particular than the youngest then is the oldest a, a girl or a boy i have four daughters first okay by the six boys oh, so, oh okay so you had all girls first right oh wow and one of my nicknames was father abu banat also known as father of the daughters <laughs> until the boys started coming i was losing that testosterone battle <laughs> Yes, now they're in the lead. Awesome. So one of the things that that I find find really interesting is um, we when we talk about black families in general, right? There's a lot of history behind 
And um, that's a whole nother show, kind of like the history behind how dysfunction happens in the black family and its its connection to slavery. But um, I'm always fascinated and even myself try to go with the philosophy is that the cycle has to stop at some point. Right. And at what point did you kind of like notice the dysfunction that was inherent in your family and start taking intentional steps to change that, uh, that cycle, that generational dysfunction, as I mentioned in your bio. Oh, it's a good question. I, I specifically remember being 12 years old. Um, this is when my father and my mother began their divorce proceedings. So my father was there. Actually, I was at his wedding. I'm, I was born while my parents were both 16 years old. Mm. Okay. So they were 16 and met in high school and got married at 21 years old. I was, again, I was the, the ring boy, I guess, at the wedding. But what I noticed, just growing up, there was a, a lot of dysfunction. I mean, I'm, I was witness to um, alcohol abuse from my, my father, for example. There was domestic violence in the household. There were other drugs and things that were being used. There was even um, sexual abuse um, as well in my house. But I specifically remember being 12 years old when my father's... Um, they were going through a divorce and, and a hard time going through separation. But I knew that I wanted to be, as a man, my father was the perfect example for me of what not to do. So I began working out because I was a small, frail guy. I started lifting weights more. And I was saying, you know, I'm going to build into this man that he wasn't. And I had no example or model to really look at. But that was a really defining age for me. Mm. I'm I'm sorry, Nazir. I think we we lost audio, so just give me one minute. We're having a cup, a little bit of technical difficulties here. Um, okay. We, um, are you still there? Lost my audio. Lost okay. My audio. Yes. Now I hear you back. Now I hear you okay. back. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yes. <laughs> so um, I don't know what part so I you, on, I I the last thing that I heard was uh you started lifting weights and you started to change. And I lost you again. <laughs> I lost you okay, again. Okay. No, no, no. That's fine. Basically, okay. I, I knew that coming into my teenage years and, and becoming a man, I needed to do something. And the only thing I could think of that I had control of at that time was my body. Mm. So I started to work out at 12 years old. I started to pay attention to a lot more things. And of course, puberty was beginning to kick in at around that time. And, you know, so I felt that one of the first things is if I had gotten bigger, if I got more muscular, I may be able to stop some of these things or prevent some things as being the man of the house, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So so that's a that's a really interesting philosophy that I think that a lot of kids, um, they kind of like take on that responsibility that it is their job to kind of like change their parents. How do we relate to kids that when things um, that's not positive, when negative things negative things happen in their life that it's not their fault and it's not their job to change their parents or to change their siblings. Sometimes kids take on too much. How do, how do we relate that to them? Indeed. Well, the first thing is obviously any type of change has to do with some type of awareness mm -hmm. and understanding what we actually do have control over and what we do not have control over. Um, many times, the only thing that we can really change or control is ourselves. I mean, even our children are born from independence. They want their independence from when they're in the mother's womb, kicking around and moving and, and trying to really be born. They're in a fight for independence. And that's our job to kind of guide them on that way towards their independence. So 
one of the most challenging things is to be able to have some type of role model, some type of mentor or some type of an escape where we can develop our own self-love. So the first thing is to let a child know it's not their fault. Circumstances and situations are what they are. But what we can control is what we feel about them, what we think about these circumstances and in turn what we do. So me trying to change my father, that wasn't going to happen. I never had the, the idea in my mind to attempt to change him. My only goal was to, if he was being abusive or something, is to stop him or protect my family members. Mm. So that was a, a difference. That means that's what I can attempt to control mm. at the time, or at least what I thought um, I needed to do in order to have maintain some to change a situation versus changing another person, because we don't have that control of another person. Ask any parent. You know, right. we have control to a certain extent, but everyone is their own individual. It's like if our parents are still living, they can't control what we do, but our job is to try to help influence them to make better decisions. Yeah, for sure. Now, now one of the things that I did want to kind of like get your view on is we know that, oh, it's particularly over the last year here in America, it has been a very trying times for lots of different demographics. Um, black people in particular, not just the last year, but probably it, it has probably escalated in the last three or four years, right, with all of the police shootings and um, all of the increase of um, discrimination and racist issues. And since the election a year ago, um, how... How do you find parenting black children has changed in the last? So you have a child that's 22 and I know my oldest son is 24 and how I parented him when he was five is very different than how I parented my last child who is 17. So how have you, cause you have kids of the full, full range. How has it changed from parenting your older children to in the last three or four years has have you changed anything with all of the things that's going on that's a that's a tough question and it really depends on personal um, experiences because even though things have changed over the last year in reality they haven't it's really been much more exposed to the other meaning if you're not black or if mm -hmm. you're not latino or haven't really experienced it then it was an eye opener for you with trump winning the election Mm. Not an eye opener for the rest of us, you know. Very true. Even the, we've talked about the um, the electoral college system. We've talked about racism, and now it's you know maybe they're feeling they're getting a free pass, and it's more open and more acceptable amongst certain circles. But it's always been there for us. Mm. They're just now recognizing, hey, you guys are actually telling the truth, mm. you know. So what it does for us in particular, if we look at it now, it it kind of reminds me like I'm from Wisconsin. And unfortunately, if you search worst places in the country for black people, Wisconsin comes up as number one, for real. Wow. The Huffington Post, the New York Times. And we have a... Now, why is that? For, because Wisconsin is really Jim Crow North. Okay? Oh. They look at every demographic. Um, now, we only make up 6% of the state, but it locks up more black people than any other state per capita. Wow. Okay. The income disparity is that 50% of their white counterparts, Wow. the employment, the education, the healthcare, in every single metric measured, Wisconsin ranks the worst amongst black wow. men, women, and children. Wow. Okay? Not, that, not in the deep south somewhere, you know, so it's called Jim Crow North. And in Wisconsin, it doesn't matter if you're talking about the judicial system. You have 
30 to 40 percent of black males between 18 and 30 is under some type of supervision or locked up. Wow. You know, our DA just went on the radio last year or 2016, and you're four and a half to five times more likely to be arrested and charged for marijuana, for weed, than your white counterparts. Because in Milwaukee, the first time is a misdemeanor. The second time is a felony. So anyone who's familiar with the new Jim Crow book by Michelle Alexander knows they create an undercast system. And so when we talk about broken homes and families in particular, Wisconsin is that testing ground. Wow. So right now, uh, like, for example, next week I'll be on, uh, my wife and I will be on um, CBS this morning talking about the lead in the water issue because Milwaukee has had lead water prior to Flint and it's been known for decades, but the places where it is are where black people and brown people are uh, concentrated, if you will. So they know about lead laterals coming in homes. And uh, my youngest son, or my, well, not my youngest, but my five-year-old son, he has he had a lead level of like 11.4. And first of all, there's no good lead level, but we started noticing some developmental issues when he's like three, not being mm. able to really talk that well. So he's been affected. And his most recent test, which was done a few weeks ago, was still at lead level five, which is high. Wow. So. We're dealing with lead level issues here in Wisconsin, and now there are other studies that show, um, longitudinal studies that show violence being right in line with, of course, low educational scores, but also being poisoned. Mm. So looking at these issues, these are not new. Now, mind you, Milwaukee is also where um, the housing issue and you know equal housing rights things popped off back in 1967. Mm. You know, so again, Milwaukee, about the ninth or tenth year in a row, was not labeled the most segregated city in the country. You know, these things are really? by design. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when you when you look at these different um, metrics, this is just one city. Imagine it throughout the entire country. Mm. So, though it may look better, and some things are getting better. You know, of course, we could always look to the worst. Say, well, at least it's not slavery again. However, in Milwaukee, there's a form of slavery under the 13th Amendment that begs to differ, mm, you know. Mm. So with my parenting, I have to make sure I'm aware of these things. Like today is a very important day. Today is marks the anniversary of uh, Malcolm X assassination, mm. you know. So and speaking with my children, one of the first figures and the most dynamic figures I ever saw as a man mm. um, that I truly respect. He was assertive. He didn't hold his tongue. He spoke truth to power was Malcolm X. Mm. So. In those years, when I was 12, 13, 14, I was reading about Muhammad Ali and, and Malcolm X. I wasn't Muslim at the time, but I admired them for what they put out. Malcolm was always, he was dressed sharp. He always, he would think, he would smile, had a great, you know, Colgate smile, if you will. <laughs> and he was in pictures with his daughters. So I, I would see this father figure in Malcolm. And of course, and then he was light-skinned and stuff like that, which looked like a lot of my relatives who have different <laughs> color eyes and they're light-skinned and so on. So I, I associated with him. Mm -hmm. and wanted to kind of model him. So as I studied more and more about him and his conversion and so on and so forth, that was one of the uh, influencers in my life and something I wanted to shape myself after in that man, mm. if that, you know, if that makes sense. But we have to know clearly not only the history of us here in this country, if you will, but even prior to. Absolutely. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka. And we're talking about parenting black children with Nazir Al-Mujahid, the author of Parenting on Purpose. 
you the last thing that you said uh really brings us perfectly into uh the next uh topic is when you saw Malcolm X, you saw somebody that you can identify with because you looked like him. He looked like your relatives. So we just we have to touch on the topic of the week, right? <laughs> Which is the Black Panther movement movie. The Black Panther movie um, is now number one movie in the world. It has had Wave reviews, but also a lot of, I think, needed and interesting conversation. Do you now you've seen the movie? I've seen the movie twice. I think you've beat me. You've seen it three times, right? <laughs> um, how do you how do you give me your take on how this particularly will affect young black people? Well, not just young black people, um, black people our age and, and even older. Uh, I remember seeing at the end of the Avengers movie and seeing Black Panther when he was uh, initially introduced uh, the Civil War or whatnot and seeing this Black character and at the end of the movie then they, they showed like a part of Wakanda, you know, just as a intro to the next section and just feeling in my heart just warmed by that, like almost a sadness, like Dude, I have to get this age to finally see something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so one just the sights and the cast and the blackness that comes along with it, the richness and the wealth that comes along with it is amazing to see, first of all. And second, it also taps into your imagination to what could be or could have been, or because we know that many of us have come um, from different royalty and from different lands and there's some type of connection. So there's the, the emotional base with Africa, and then of course you have the African American, which is, you know, technically it really comes to this homeless being that we really can't call home because we are part of the American diaspora, but at the same time, we're Africans in America. Mm. You know, so there's there's this big chain, but Black Panther, without going all the, in, into the storyline, it provides a bridge, a bridge for discussion, a bridge for building, and it builds something to look up to. I remember when I was younger watching the Cosby show and seeing this this doctor and this lawyer and, and Claire spoke Spanish and was beautiful and all that all that type of stuff. Then there was a different world with with college and um, then there was school days and then Roman HBCUs really grew. So to have a positive effect is an understatement. Um, when you see something like Black Panther, you see the STEM, you see the, uh, the, the the princess doing her thing with science and technology, you see the women standing strong and being firm and being natural and beautiful and chocolate. All of these things, you know, push against what's normally being taught to you. You know, if, if it's white, it has to be right. You have to have this knight in shining, shining armor and all of your heroes will not look like you. Whether you're liking Iron Man or Thor and all the rest of these imaginary characters, they don't look like you. You need to wait on someone else. So Black Panther gives you that sense of self-pride and love and the ability to to really build. And my children loved it. And we had a, a long discussion about different things. And of course, you know, depending on their maturity level, they can go deeper into the characters and the story and who was actually a villain, who wasn't a villain. Mm who can relate to who they call the villain and, and, and stuff like that. So. How did, how, I'm interested because you have kids at so many different ages. Did you find that the age that they were changed how they actually view who was a villain and who wasn't? Yes, my daughters, my older daughters, um, a, a 17-year-old, a 15-year-old, they related to 
who was supposed to be the arch villain in the movie and saying, well, he just he had bad manners. There were some things he did that weren't right, but his mission was noble. Mm. You know, we might not have liked it, but he lived it. Look at his father and what his father said, because those daughters read the new Jim Crow. You know, they're educated on what's going on around them in this undercast system. I have to uh, teach on a model of one, three C's and one of those C's being that confidant. We have to empower our children to be able to see what's going on on the news and be able to read it properly. Okay, so so I'm going to pause for a minute because you said something that we need explanation. What's the C, what's the teaching on the three C's? What are the three C's? Oh, I'm sorry. The three C's are three main roles that we have as parents. Um, The first is the celebrity. We are celebrity. Our children are young. They look up to us for everything on how to dress, how to walk, how to talk. They imitate us. They're almost, almost godlike, if you will. Okay. So we're that celebrity or that role model. Um, second is that confidant. We have to be able to have that ear to listen to them, to understand them, but also help them read between the lines. Okay. And the third is that coach. The coach, of course, is the cheerleader. The coach is the one that can see how far they need to go. That coach is also the disciplinarian. And discipline, 90% is training versus um, punishment, if you will, or corrective discipline. So these are the three C's, the celebrity, the confidant, and the coach. And as the confidant, we speak about different things. We ask questions and we try to pull out what their thoughts are. So my older children absolutely did. My younger children, my younger boys, they were like, they just love the action. He was wrong. He was right. You know, so they're not as deep in their thinking yet. But, um, of course, they enjoyed it nonetheless. And they see themselves. Um, in different powerful roles as being, you know, men and being able to work together. It's, it's a really, really, really great, it's an, it's an epic film. Well, so do you, so here's the, the, I guess the, the, the big, bigger question that people are now starting to, to, to ask is, can this really make a difference in the black community? S- seeing a well, film like this. Well, just like I I noted with the Cosby show or a different world or school days. And if that question is a legitimate question, as opposed to just a gripe about what we're doing, if you will, or, you know, having actually black people on screen, then we also have to ask the the opposite. Is it um, negative? Does it negatively affect, impact the community if there are negative films Mm -hmm. or negative music that occurs? Because if we're saying that media doesn't affect and this is brand new. We already know in social, social, sociology that your perception and influence is, is affected by your environment. So just like um, children want to be basketball players or they want to be scientists now or they want to be astronauts because the first black astronaut flew or this teacher went, you know, we ascribe certain things to ourselves. The only time we put limits on it, we ask those questions is when people of color tend to do things for themselves. Mm-hmm. So I don't really think that's a genuine question. Um, because we aren't asking that question. Yeah. <laughs> this is very true. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. Also streaming live on newhavenindependent.org, as well as streaming live on the Fit Muslima fan page. You can join us on any of those platforms. You can listen live stream on newhavenindependent.org. So if you have to run away from your computer screen and or your car and you want to listen to us, you can go ahead and click on the little blue uh, icon on the top left of the New Haven Independent page and you can listen to us live stream. And if you're in front of a computer and you want to actually watch and see our smiling faces, 
And you can go to the Fit Muslim Rock fan page. I'm talking to Nazir Al Mujahid this morning, author of Parenting on Purpose, and we're talking about parenting black children. Um, one of the things that I wanted to also talk a little bit about was so I don't I'm gonna I'm gonna make a, a big assumption that you probably don't watch Grey's Anatomy. Okay. So Grey's and on Grey's Anatomy there was a very, very profound scene uh about I guess it was about two weeks ago where um the black doctors had a little has a little boy who's about I don't know, he's about ten, and they sat down and they had the talk with him. And of course it went viral and people were talking about it and black people was like, okay, yeah, this is what we do. Um, do you, do you have the talk with your kids? Is there, so one of the things that I found is, and, and I'm not sure if this is, be, and I'm actually because I'm not sure if this is just a kind of like, because my husband is in law enforcement, we never sat down and officially have a talk, right? It was like something that was ongoing that, you know, you just inform them as time go on. Do you, did you ever with your boys sit down and like specifically have a talk about how to interact with police? Not yet. No, not yet. Not yet. Do you uh, plan on having we've one? Talked about it. Well, we, we've discussed things like, I'll give you an example. One of the things that we do, is we watched a number of different documentaries. So we dealt with uh, watching 13 and talking about the process and asking questions and talking about slavery and, and the, the justice system or whatnot and how it, how it operates. Uh, we've watched White Like Me. There's a documentary by Tim Wise, really love the guy, he's an anti-racist white guy, um, has books under the affluence and White Like Me and so on. So we watched the documentary, talked about it. There's Jane Elliott, love her and her work with the blue eye, brown eye test. Mm -hmm. So we watch it and we discuss these things. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the things we had to discuss was back in 2011, I was put over. Mm -hmm. um, I was driving a rental car. It was a Camaro. I was put over by two racist white cops who were in an unmarked car, um, pulled me out the vehicle, told them to rotate a cuff, assaulted me and everything else. Um, mm. Fast forward after talking to the NAACP and other local people here in Wisconsin, they weren't willing to, to move forward. And of course, the internal investigation showed they did nothing wrong. Um, thankfully, I found an, an attorney um, who wasn't scared of the, the poly local politics uh, from Georgia. Mm. And he came in and we sued them in federal court and won almost $50,000 from the city um, for the police brutality and everything else that occurred. So we had to discuss that. You know, I couldn't have done anything differently. Um, had I done anything different, I would probably be dead, meaning I put my hands up and everything and even had my hands up while I was getting assaulted while a shotgun was two feet away from my head. Mm. So we did discuss those things and I haven't had anything with them yet, um, specifically about how to put your hands on the wheel, how to do these certain things because they aren't driving yet. Mm. And it's also, so it's just still stressful and trauma traumatic for me. At this point, mm. I don't want to take that innocence from him just yet. Mm. And my, my mother's husband, he's a um, he's a police officer, firearms instructor, the last 20 or so years in the department. And um, he'll be taking him to the academy and showing him how to shoot and stuff like that. But um, he had his own story. The reason he joined the police force is because he was brutalized as a child. Mm. And he wanted to get on the force and beat the cop up. Uh, you know, I guess <laughs> he never met the cop. But, you know, you know, sometimes we laugh to keep from crying, crying in these situations. But since we talk about 
um, different things since they see people getting pulled over. We do discuss it, but we haven't had the official formal. This is what you do or don't do or say and how to address them and so on and so forth. Though these things are important, we haven't gotten there yet. And how old is your oldest boy? Oldest boy will be 13 in December. Okay. And I do have my stepson is 18. Okay. And of course, we've discussed it. Um, not again, just formal, but we've discussed it because he's he's um, in the process of getting his driver's license. Now, is this a conversation that you have with girls? Of course. Have you? Question. Have you? I ha- mean, when we with my daughters, again, my um, three girls that are you know then driving and stuff like that, you have to, you know, because now there's sexual assault that goes on. We know that black and brown women are um, sexually assaulted and many times by police officers. In 35 states right now, there's no law prohibiting a police officer from having sex with one of their um, captives, I guess I would call it, versus detainee, but having sex mm-hmm. with a detainee and claiming that it is, well, it's consensual. There's mm-hmm. no law against that in 35 states, which wow, really? to me is shameful, but, you know, I have daughters, mm-hmm. so, you know, they need to know, but, you know, they're not really driving anywhere by themselves and, and so on, but yeah, it's, if you care about your children and living in America, it's an unfortunate reality for us that has not necessarily just gotten bad in the last year. It's been that way since we've been here. Mm. When you when we talk about kind of like having these conversations with young people, um, how give us some advice as to what age do you think? So we talked. We so we talked about that. You said that you you felt like that's more appropriate when your kids are learning to drive. But what age do you start having these difficult conversations? Because I think all parents kind of struggle with that. You don't want to take their innocence away. You want them to enjoy being kids and just like everybody else as as long as they possibly can. But there is a reality to being black in America. So. Uh, how do you determine and it may and and I recognize it may change based based on gender based on the individual child's maturity but as parents how do you tell when you should start having those hard conversations with kids it's it's actually difficult because as parents of course we're biased we have our own experiences and there's no cookie cutter way however um one of the things we teach is the three stages our children really go through, usually between one to seven years old, kind of the first stage, and then seven, eight to preteen, then there's teenagers. So those are the three stages in general. Now, it's funny because I would say that the outside forces of society don't wait until your children reach a certain age. Um, For example, um, some of the best movies out are children's movies and the stories in these children's movies. However, they are planting certain seeds of this fake white supremacy. So, if you're watching uh, Madagascar, for example, it should probably really confuse you as an adult to wonder why Alex the Lion has blue eyes. <laughs> why have blue eyes? He's from Africa, you know. And then, you know, in the sequel, then his father, you know, Bernie Mac, you know, I mean, why do we have blue eyes? Mm-hmm. Because usually the blue eyes associated with white people and being, you know, the hero of something, even if it's something clearly African in the heart of Africa, like a lion or cars with Speedy McQueen or Lightning McQueen, you know, these big blue eyes come up, right? Mm. You know, which looks different than who you are. All right. So now I usually eight, nine years old or when, when we get to discussing and I ask him different things about the film. See, I would also ask, when is it, when do our children begin recognizing this conditioning? 
you know, when they did the, the Dow test back in the, I think it was the 60s, when the sociologists did the Dow test about which one is ugly and which one is beautiful, these kids were like four and five years old. Mm. So they were already conditioned on what they see on television. You know, so when we see black men on TV in particular, I look at the commercials. Commercial has a plethora, well, comparatively speaking, there are many more black women than black men. Black men are usually noticeably absent in many commercials. Mm. So, but you'll see the black women there. They'll even be with white men or Asian men and sometimes Latino men or whatnot if it's a couple or some marriage thing. But black men are noticeably absent. Let's do some sports going on there, you know, recognized there in the sports arena. But when you look at commercials on TV, we're missing. So mm. we're a big part of society, you know. So it depends on when your child, when you ask your child questions. Because of course, communication is key in any relationship. So if we want to know what they're thinking. We have to let them know. One, the brain doesn't sleep. I let my children know. I say, "What are you thinking about?" They can't say nothing because they know the brain is always going. Even if it's, oh, I'm thinking about dinner or the tree outside or whatever, you know. So we have to ask them and dig into it to find out. So we talk about race relatively early. I would say seven, eight years old just because it's a reality here. Mm. It's a reality in the cartoons that they see, mm. you know, in the different movies that they see. They don't see heroes that look like them. That's why, again, Black Panther is so huge. Mm. You know, point of black black hero or, or black superstar in the movie Toys, Blockbuster, Toys 1, 2, or 3, mm. or even Cars with the black voice. You know, you see Transformers, and we hear the black voices of what we consider ethnic voices, and they're idiots, mm. you know? So these things are not not um on accident mm. so we speak about it and we talk about the conditioning we look at older cartoons like bugs bunny with his um black face on right mm. or you see him uh warner brothers characters having little japanese um cartoons and long tails mm. you know when we were you know having the issues with pearl harbor and so on and then you have the 80s uh, against the soviet union how they were demonized through every movie whether it's rambo and now um we have muslims being Target. Even before I was Muslim, I remember the movie True Lies and all kinds of things. Um, that was with Schwarzenegger. He had all the Steven Seagal movies. And then, of course, Rambo killing all the Muslims in Afghanistan. And everything was this terrorist-related thing against Muslims. But I thought Muslims were crazy until I actually started looking into the religion itself. Mm. So this conditioning happens to all of us. You know, what we think, whatever we're doing is just normal, whether it's a, a form of marriage or it's a form of dress or our freedom of expression. And it's sad because less than 5% of people possess passports, according to the State Department. 5% of Americans? 5% of black folks in particular. Oh, oh. It's about 18 to 20 some percent of Americans, but only 5% of African Americans. Really? So if we're not traveling and getting other culture or building other relationships or seeing things outside of the lens or the bubble that we're in, then we're doing a disservice to ourselves and future generations mm. because we still haven't addressed the trauma and not being rebuilt or repaired from things that happened to our families directly. Um, one of the saddest things, and I, I hate it vehemently, we can be very vocal about social justice. And this is, must be done, this is very important. But one of the things that happens many times in a lot of families, not just African-American families, is that we allow um, women to be sexually abused. Mm. So when I was looking recently, reading about statistics in the Black House, I was saying it's about 60 to 70% of Black girls are sexually molested before the time that they're even 18. Mm, wow. so we're raising a lot of broken women. And, and many times this is about their relatives or people who are close to the family. And that's not something people want to shout about that, that has happened, but this creates trauma and creates generational problems and it hasn't stopped. 
you know, so, you know, we may know of it or we may have come at family gatherings or people may say something and then they're just told to be liars or they're ashamed of it. So, you know, these types of trauma and issues really create broken women, and which, of course, that cycle continues and continues and continues. And many times it's done by a man and they don't get any, any type of pass, but it also happens to our boys as well. Mm. So but these discussions must come up about obviously private parts, touching, knowing um, who you are and your right to yourself and self-love and not being ashamed and it wouldn't be your fault. This mm. is the type of world we live in. And it's not it's sad because they get their innocence taken and not know what to do, mainly because parents know better and they trust that someone's not going to abuse their children. And it, they so they don't have that conversation. We can't afford to be naive, knowing that this stuff happens to anybody of any race, of any religion, anywhere throughout the world. And we have to be vigilant on it if we want to raise children aware and try to prevent them from being broken, especially from that sexual means in such a time where now that Me Too has been catching on since uh, affluent white women have really brought it forward, it's been going on for a very long time but it starts and goes on in many of our homes. And that's the part that's um, really angering to me. And that, and that's the conversation that, so, so the conversation with, uh, so the conversation with boys around the me too movement, how, how do you have that conversation and what are you saying? Well, it, it, <laughs> the, the main response to anything in parenting is it depends. <laughs> because it really does. It, it really does. As a Muslim, one of the things that um, I kind of pride myself on personally, and my sons, I want to raise gentlemen, want to raise men who are chivalrous. And we have the perfect example when the Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessed be upon him, of how he dealt with women and how he honored women. For example, this month, what I'm doing on um, our page at Outstanding Muslim Parents, I'm talking about Black Muslim history. So, for example, I believe it was yesterday, um, it was a uh, Himama Hashaviya. She was the mother of Bilal ibn Rabah. So she was a princess who had come, and I haven't seen the movie yet, but she had come from Ethiopia or Habashia, and she was his mother. And the prophet, that was one, just one woman. Then there was another woman whom the prophet asked companion ibn Abbas, he said, you know, do you want to see a woman of the paradise? And it was a sister who came in. She had a disability. She had epilepsy. And she came to him and she said, you know, you a messenger of Allah. Can you pray for me? Because... I have epileptic fits and, you know, I, I become uncovered. And he said, I can pray for you for the cure. But, you know, if you're patient, you know, you'll get paradise. She said, I'll be patient. But can you pray for me that when I fall into my epileptic seizures that I don't become uncovered? And he prayed for her. But this is a black woman that he not only prayed for, but prayed and called as a woman of paradise. Mm. Okay. You know, the very first woman, the, a woman whom I named my daughter Sumaya after, she was a black woman was the first martyr in Islam. Mm. You know, these are a high law. This is the highest position anybody outside of a prophet can have as a martyr. And the very first one is a black woman. Mm. So when people talk about all oh, this, the, the Arabism or the Arab supremacy and so on in Islam, no, this is not part of Islam. This may be from Arabs or maybe from Muslims who misinterpret Islam, but Islam is clear that the best of you are, is the one who has the most faith, the one who um, is the most pious and treats other human beings well. So, so it's important that you that we that we relate stories of powerful women to boys, um, in order for them to uh, for us to. It's not just women who that need to take action in the Me Too movement. Understanding how to how to create those 
uh, more respectful and, as you mentioned, chivalrous men. Um, Indeed. Well, we're, we're ordered in, in our Quran too that men are the maintainers and protectors of women. So it doesn't just say of your wives. It says of women. You know, so one, as an example, a recent example, uh, my sons and I were coming from the morning prayer, which is about six o'clock here um, a couple of weeks ago. And it's like 15 degrees with a windshield below zero mm. and <laughs> ladies car. It was cold. So we're coming back. It is dark in the morning. And a lady was she was stranded in a car. She, you know, it was right in the middle of traffic. And this is right before rush hour traffic hits. So I'm like, OK, well, we pulled over into a little parking lot. The boys got out. Um, three of the four got out because my youngest is with me. He's five. He wasn't going to push anything. So I had the other three boys get out. We pushed her, got her out of traffic, asked her, was everything okay? And she had some people coming, but we needed to get her out of traffic. Mm -hmm. So we did our job, got out of traffic, got back in the vehicle because it was cold and we left. Mm -hmm. But they know it was our responsibility. Even if it was a man, we would likely would have helped. But because it was a woman, we all needed to get out and make sure she was safe and she was okay. And I want to be able to set that example for them um, knowing that you're men, you have to protect women, period. This is responsible. And we just read a, a hadith or a tradition the other day that said two types of people that if you do not help them, it's a sin. Uh, the first is the orphan and the second is women. You know, mm -hmm. women were considered property and chattel property just uh, till what, maybe 130, 140 years ago, weren't even allowed to vote here. Weren't allowed to own any property, but Islam came and kind of leveled that thing out mm -hmm. so that we have this, this role as men to be honorable and of course, your, your mother gave birth to you. And, and if you ever, I deliver my, my, my children, my youngest mm -hmm. children. And if you ever see strength, <laughs> we're glad we're men because women, are they, they are the strong ones and brought you in this world. So um, it's, an, it's an amazing thing. So we only have a couple of minutes left of the show. Um, Nazir, share, uh, give us one last um, um, advice as parents of how to better parent black children better parent black children um i will go to our framework we talked about the three being the celebrity the celebrity the confidant and the coach but there's also three e's three e's that's to engage equip and empower and these are universal principles so you can it doesn't matter if my mother's latina she's boricua she's puerto rican and of course these are just um different parts of the the world many of us are dropped off on if you will so she's afro-latina so it doesn't matter, but you can take these principles and engage your children, meaning you ask them questions, you know, open-ended questions so that they speak, find out what their likes are, engage them, all right, help equip them and empower them. So the equip part comes into, okay, well, if you, as a black man in America, I need to be discussing race. I need to be discussed. I need to uh, discuss where I'm at in my state, my history of my state. I need to discuss housing. We need to talk about redlining, how that affects um, education. We need to talk about how when we go to a hospital, 90% um, of the high paying jobs and the doctors and surgeons are white and the cleaners, they're black and mm -hmm. how this actually relates to redlining. So we have to teach history and we have to equip them so they're empowered enough to go in the world to be that difference that we want. Not just so that they're angry or they get mad and want to want place blame, but so they know when there comes change or change has to happen, has to happen through me with a proper understanding of how history intersects right now with the present. So whether that be with um, the gun violence that just occurred in in Florida, with the with the terrorist attack that occurred that hasn't yet to be called a terrorist attack because it's a white guy, um, when you call a car accident that runs over some people, which is horrible, 
But if that's considered a terrorist attack, if somebody goes in and slaughters innocent kids, it's not. Well, there's some thinking that has to, you know, has to explain that. So we have to equip our children to be able to understand it. And one of the movements I'm seeing really coming from it are these young people are tired of uh, these mass shootings and what's going on and not much being done. So I admire it because they're coming to really change. A lot of not just the millennials, but the younger generations want some type of change and they're beginning to demand it. So unless we equip them with that. I think that is an entire show. We could do a whole show just on that. We, uh, I want to thank you for joining me. This, I could definitely, we definitely have to do a follow-up. We have to do a follow-up show. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why I love doing this show because having conversations and being informed and other, hearing other perspectives and learning is just like, it's, it's kind of like one of the perks of this show. So we are at the end of our show, but if you can just take 30 seconds to tell us how to get in touch with you. Oh, excellent. No problem. One, um, I'm at outstandingmuslimparents.com. So outstandingmuslimparents.com. You go get some of our free reports, and this is a copy of my book, Muslims Parenting on Purpose, Volume 1. Again, uh, universal principles. So, you know, that's that's where we're at. And, of course, they can go to, go to your page, listen to it, and uh, listen to it, share it, go from there. But outstandingmuslimparents.com. Again, it was an honor, you know, to really share, Thank you. to really discuss what's going on, especially during this month on this important day. I appreciate you and all that you do in your service to the community. Thank, Thank you. you. And I appreciate you joining me. And if you have been listening, you've been listening to Mornings with Mubarak on WNHLP 103.5 FM. And I want to remind you to be a voice and not an echo.